last week we just started and I said that I was going to do an overview of the uh, end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. And my reason for doing that is you have a lot of people that have covered a Great Awakening in some detail. And those lectures are on Sermon Audio. If you want a recommendation, I would say that Michael Haken did a pretty good job. There's a few things that he says about the history that is helpful for me. And he covers four lessons on George Whitfield alone, where just lesson number one is the state of uh, Europe and what was prior to America in the 1730s and 1740s, how bad it actually was before John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and Whitfield set out to preach. It was, it was really a bad time, and uh, you know, it's easy for us to look at what's going on around us and say, has there ever been a time like this? But as I was reading uh, history of what was going on before the Kentucky Revival, I saw that there were some things that uh, were pretty dark and in great need of revival even then because of the spread of uh, infidelity, which I will get in. But to begin this lesson, in the introduction to the grace and duty of being spiritually minded, there's these powerful words by John Owen, and I've titled this under a heading, Why is Revival Needed? And he says, quote, There are so great and pregnant evidences of the prevalence of an earthly, worldly frame of spirit in many who make profession of religion that it is high time they were called to a due consideration how unanswerable they are in this to the power and spirituality of that religion which they profess. There is no way in which such a frame, carnal, frame, a natural frame, not a spiritual frame, not walking in the spirit, but basically caught up with the cares of this life. And he says, there's no way that such a frame as that may be evidence to prevail in many, yea, in the generality of such professors, that it is not manifest to all. In other words, if some people are in a state of carnal security, if they are in a state of declension, other people around them are going to notice it and it brings a blot on their Christian profession. He says in their habits, their attires, that's what they wear, their vestments and their usual converse and time misspent in their over-liberal entertainment of themselves and others to the borders of excess and a number of other things of a like nature. There is in many such a conformity to the world, a thing severely forbidden in the scriptures, that it is hard to make a distinction between them, the spiritual Christian and the unbeliever. And these things manifest such a predominancy of carnal affections in the minds of men as whatever may be pretended to the contrary is inconsistent with spiritual peace. To call men off from this evil frame of heart and mind, to discover the sin and danger of it, to direct them to the ways and means in which it may be affected, to supply their thoughts and affections with better objects, to discover and press that exercise of them which is indispensably required of all believers if they design life and peace is part of the reason why he wrote this book. But we discussed, well, what would happen if 
real revival came to an assembly. And we used a few examples. I was quoting a letter. It was written in 1814 from a book on revivals between 1812 and 1850 by by a Baptist named Joshua Bradley. And it was one of six books that was contained in a set that was republished and made available as a revival series by Richard Owen Roberts, who was up by uh, Wheaton College since then. He's moved to Texas. He's 92 now, so it's hard to believe that the people that have most influenced me and my love of this study are rapidly going into heaven. You know, Ian Murray's not going to be around a lot longer, but I had mentioned the reason that I got started uh, interested in the study of revivals was very early on as a Reformed Baptist. I was at Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey, and I would study the tape catalog all the time. And I was interested in the lectures that were being given at the Reformed Baptist Family Conference, the early ones back in the 1970s. This particular one was in Harvey Cedars, New Jersey. So the two churches... In the 70s, maybe a third that would have come to this would have been Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, Grace Baptist Church in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and uh, the Reformed Baptist Church in Mebane. And I got very interested in this subject because Ian Murray had given five lectures at the request of the people. He was coming to the United States, they gave him a subject, and amazingly, from what I understand, he had never really thoroughly studied the subject before, but this was 1973. By the 1994, he published his book, Revival and Revivalism, which means that he had studied this out in some detail, and of all the books in my library that are helpful on revival, I'm just amazed at the amount of research it is in that book. There's almost no uh, period of revival that I teach on where I haven't looked at Ian Murray's book. Archibald Alexander in his appendix to Lectures on Revival. So let me tell you about that book because I want you to be familiar with and those people who are listening to the audio that there were a number of books that the Banner of Truth republished that were very, very helpful on this subject. And one of them was Lectures on Revival by William Sprague, 1832. Sprague was in the first generation of the pastors, Presbyterian pastors, that went to Princeton Theological Seminary. And in 1832, because there were revivals going on in the United States, Finney was just coming on the scene about that time. He wrote a book called Lectures on Revival. Well, I moved to Grand Rapids in December of 88, and my brother at the time was living in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. He's now in Northern California. He drills water wells. Uh, But uh, anytime I'd go to a big city like that, I'd look through the yellow pages. There was no internet, and I would try to find a bookstore, see what I could find, and I actually found a second edition of Lectures on Revival, and where that book is so interesting In the appendix, there are approximately 25 to 30 letters where he wrote to prominent Presbyterian pastors and other pastors in that day and asked them, uh, many of them had been around revivals, if they would write an article that he could include in the appendix. And the very first one is by Archibald Alexander. We mention Archibald Alexander in any class I teach because of his book, Thoughts on Religious Experiences, just so helpful for all of the things that we've covered. But he wrote a 
appendix letter that God included. It's the very first one, and he says, quote, In a revival, it makes the greatest difference in the world, whether the people have been carefully taught by catechizing and where they are ignorant of the truth of the Bible. In some cases, revivals are so remarkably pure that nothing occurs with which any pious man can find fault. There's not only no wildness and extravagance, but very little commotion of the animal feelings. And when I talk about animal feelings, that was the term they used in those days for the physiological things you would see in humans that are common to animals. And one of them that we may get into next week is the effect of sympathy. It's almost worth doing a whole class on what are the aberrations in a revival so that you can uh, determine as you read the histories of Charles Finney and others, what happened after about 1840 uh, when we talk about revivals. But the word of God distills upon the mind like the gentle rain, and the Holy Spirit comes down like the dew, diffusing a blessed influence on all around. Such a revival affords the most beautiful sight ever seen upon earth. Its aspect gives us a lively idea of what will be the general state of things in the latter-day glory, and some faint image of the heavenly state. The impressions on the minds of the people in such a work are the exact counterpart of the truth, just as the impression on the wax corresponds to the seal. I used that illustration of Alexander before. When we talk about Christian experience, the Bible is the seal. The seal is perfect. As the truths of the Bible get impressed upon the mind, and you study the effects that the Bible has upon the mind, feelings, the body, and everything, that's Christian experience. And so Christian experience is just a study of the seal, the impress that the Bible has made upon the mind, the heart, the affections, and so on. He says in such revivals there is a great solemnity and silence. Keep that in mind and compare that to most of the revivals you hear about in our day. Solemnity and silence. Every other refuge but Christ is abandoned. The heart at first is made to fill its own impenetrable hardness, but when least expected, it dissolves under a grateful sense of God's goodness and Christ's love. Light breaks in upon the soul either by a gradual dawning or by a sudden flash. Christ is revealed through the gospel, and a firm and often joyful confidence of salvation through him is produced. A benevolent, forgiving, meek, humble, and contrite spirit predominates. The love of God is shed abroad, and with some joy unspeakable and full of glory fills the soul. A spirit of devotion is enkindled during a revival. The word of God becomes exceedingly precious. Prayer is the exercise in which the soul seems to be in its proper element because by it God is approached and his presence felt and beauty seen and the newborn soul lives by breathing after the knowledge of God after communion with God and after conformity to his will. Now also springs up in the soul an inextinguishable bold desire to promote the glory of God and to bring all men to the knowledge of the truth and by that means to the possession of eternal life. The sincere language of the heart is, Lord, what would you have me to do? That God may send upon his church many such revivals is my daily prayer. That was 1832. How much more do we want that in our Day. So William Sprague, the author of Lectures on Revival, gives these indications, indications of a real revival. The first step usually is an increase of zeal and devotedness on the part of God's people. 
They wake up to a sense of neglected obligations and resolve to return to the faithful discharge of their duty. They betake themselves with increased earnestness to the throne of grace, confessing their delinquencies with deep humility and supplicating the aids of God's Spirit to enable them to execute their pious resolutions and to discharge faithfully the various duties which devolve upon them. There too they importunately ask for the descent of the Holy Ghost on those around them, on the church with which they are connected, on their friends who are living at a distance from God, on all who are out of the ark of safety. Their conversation becomes proportionally more spiritual and edifying. They endeavor to stir up one another's minds by putting each other in remembrance of their covenant vows and impressing each other with their individual and mutual responsibilities. When they meet in the common intercourse of life, their conversation shows that the world is with them but a subordinate matter and their controlling desire is that God may be glorified in the salvation of sinners. Another prominent feature in the state of things which I am describing is the alarm and conviction of those who have prior to this been spiritually careless. Sometimes the change in this respect is very gradual and for a considerable time nothing more can be said than that there is more of a listening ear and a more serious aspect than usual under the preaching of the word. And this increased attention has gradually matured into deep solemnity and pungent conviction. In other cases, a reigning lethargy, lethargy, sleep coming upon us and making us listless and making us spiritually and mentally lazy. And that is suddenly broken up in a revival as if there had been a thunderbolt from eternity. And multitudes are heard simultaneously inquiring, what shall they do to be saved? It also belongs essentially to a revival of religion that there are those from time to time who are indulged in a hope that they are reconciled to God and are born of the Spirit. In some cases, the change of feeling is exceedingly gradual insomuch that the individual, though he is sensible of having experienced a change within a given period, is yet utterly unable to refer to it in any particular time. Sometimes the soul suddenly emerges from darkness into light and perceives a mighty change in its exercises almost in the twinkling of an eye. Sometimes there is a state of mind which is only peaceful. Sometimes it mounts up to joy and ecstasy. In some cases there is from the beginning much self-distrust and others too much confidence. But with a variety of experience, there are many who are brought or who believe themselves brought into the kingdom of Christ during a revival. So a revival is just a more manifest presence of God upon an assembly. And it's amazing that I have to defend that there is such a thing, but uh, in uh, one of our Pilgrim's Progress classes, there was somebody visiting from Michigan, and he says, well, never heard anything like that. So God would hide himself and away from his children? But that's exactly what God says he would do in Hosea 5.15 because of the sins of Israel. He says, I will go to my place. I will hide myself until they acknowledge their ways. Now we're going to move on to the Kentucky Revival. Here's an overview of the Second Great Awakening. From the 1790s to the 1840s, a seemingly continuous stream of revivals flowed across America's Protestant churches. 
Unlike the First Great Awakening, these post-revolutionary revivals were not associated with one dynamic itinerant like a George Whitfield. So different from the First Great Awakening, there were those prominent pastors that were so well known as the great preachers and the great leaders in the revival. So it'd be Whitfield as the great preacher. Edwards is the theologian behind revivals. In the second great awakening, the emphasis wasn't so much on the different speakers. So Asa Hell Nettleton was greatly used and it is my goal, Lord willing, to look over the life of Asa Hell Nettleton, which we covered a little last week when I talked about the revival that came to Yale College in 1807, and Nettleton was a student, but also Timothy Dwight, and if he gives you an estimate of this, uh, this guy was a, a great, great president, a great theologian, a godly, godly man, and brilliant. Timothy Dwight was brilliant. I mean, at uh, age of six or seven, he was taking his brother's Latin works off of the shelf, sneaking them off of the bookshelf so he could study them on his own because his parents thought that he was too young to be studying Latin. And they realized he was making such progress in Latin that they knew that they could not stop him. He had such an insatiable desire to read. But Timothy Dwight said of Asa Hell Nettleton, and he's looking at him as a student, he saw something in Asa Hell Nettleton at Yale College that he said, this man is going to go on to do great things. But the Second Great Awakening revivals were more local in nature, involving leaders of different denominations who each left their particular stamp on the revivals they oversaw. Well, it says more local in nature, and I talked about this last week, that during the Great Awakening, instead of having, say, a revival strictly in Northampton, Massachusetts, the revivals were so prominent and so large that the testimony is that a person could be riding his horse into a parish or an area or a revival is going on and without even getting into the church he could already feel the manifest presence of God and conviction. Whereas in the Second Great Awakening they were more Local And as I mentioned last week, because there were so many reports from 1792 to about 1820 or 30, there were so many reports of these local revivals that they started a magazine, and I didn't bring it. I had the very first edition called the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine, which was started in July 1800, one month after that revival started, uh, because they wanted to chronicle these stories of genuine revival that were going on. So the Evangelical Magazine carried accounts of revival, but as well it carried missionary news. It carried stories of uh, somebody's conversion and a number of other things to make it a very good family magazine. And I have to control myself all of the time because, you know, I've been reading this stuff for a while and something will trigger something else that I just have to talk about. But I will, in this case, give you an illustration. When I first got to Grand Rapids in December of 88, one of the first places I knew I wanted to visit was Calvin Seminary Library. And it was very, very complete with all kinds of good works that 
I just dreamed about seeing one day. But there was the first edition of the Banner Truth magazine, which came out in 1955. And uh, Ian Murray, one of the editors of that magazine, I mean, think about this, 1955, Ian Murray was only 24 years old when they were starting the Banner Truth magazine. But I was reading the editorial, and it was so convicting. He was quoting William Gurnall and these Puritans that you just didn't see quoted back then. And it had such a pungent, powerful message. I read this, I said, man, this is edifying. These guys are really uh, shooting a cannonball. But I have to admit, the first time that I read the first editorial in the first Connecticut Evangelical Magazine, there was something about the way the early uh, 19th century pastors wrote that just had so much conviction in it. And over the years, because I had taught on Revival more than once, I would take the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine and I would have a copy of it made called Print on Demand. And in Grand Rapids, they had a Baker book store with what they would call one of these espresso book machines. There were about 15 listed in the country who you take any PDF off of Google or Archive and they would print out a book, espresso book machine. They named it that because they could print out this book, all the pages, cut it, put a cover on it and a title on the cover in the amount of time it take you to make a cup of coffee. And so there were times I could order a book and it could be ready the next day. But my preference always if there's a good price on it. And there are books like this, I like to get a first edition, so I was blessed to get the very first edition of the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine, July 1800. So there were conditions that were prior to the Kentucky Revival, which should give us encouragement, because things are dark here as well. The General Assembly, in its pastoral letter of 1798, uses the language of great dejection, alarm, and expostulation in addressing the people in their communion. They say formidable innovations and convulsions in Europe threaten destruction to morals and religion. Scenes of devastation and bloodshed, unexampled in the history of modern nations, have convulsed the world and our country is threatened with similar calamities. We perceive with pain and fearful apprehension a general dereliction of religion principle and practice among our fellow citizens, a visible and prevailing impiety and contempt for the laws and institutions of religion, and an abounding infidelity which many, in many instances tends to atheism itself. I had mentioned just a little bit about what was going on. There was a great declension spiritually from the end of the First Great Awakening until revivals were being reported again. About 1792, I throw that date out there. But the fact of the matter is that the people that chronicled these things says there was never a time during that period where genuine revival wasn't in one locale or uh, another. But I really realized this yesterday afresh, and I was going to study it out further, but you certainly know enough about this to take my word for it, that um, in England and Europe, um, Voltaire had a plan to try to do away with Christianity. And by the late 1700s, prior even to the Revolutionary War, infidelity was really, really on the rise in this country. And uh, Voltaire's teachings had been pumped through all the public schools, and it 
was such a flood of infidelity that when Timothy Dwight became the president of Yale College in around 1800, he was faced with so much infidelity that he preached a sermon. And I remember teaching a Sunday school on that and teaching American church history based on the title of that sermon. And it was called, The Dregs of Infidelity Vomited Upon Our Shores. That's how Dwight looked at what was going on. But then the second factor was the Revolutionary War and our assistance from France. And with the bringing in of French soldiers, they also brought in their infidelity, which were the writings of Thomas Paine, the Age of Reason and Common Sense and so on. So by the end of the 1700s, there was a lot, a lot of professed atheism. Before the close of the Revolutionary War, large bodies of immigrants had settled in Tennessee and in Kentucky. Many of them were from Virginia, many were from Pennsylvania, and many also were from North and South Carolina. Quite a large number of these were religious men. Extensive and powerful revivals of religion had been granted to the American churches while we were yet colonies of Great Britain. So in the first Great Awakening, you had the names of Jonathan Edwards and one of his students, and you may not know this name, Joseph Bellamy and their fellows were the favored instruments. Such was the attitude of the West in relation to religion and religious privileges from the year 1783 till 1800, harassed by almost incessant Indian wars, impelled in a broad road by the folly and wickedness bound up in its own heart and bewitched and bewildered by the abominable example of those whose names possessed fascination because they were inscribed on the rolls of fame. In the midst of this period of spiritual darkness, Thomas Paine's age of reason came forth. Thomas Paine was favorably known to the American people as a political writer during the conflict of the Revolution. His works entitled Common Sense and the Rights of Man had secured for him a widespread reputation. And in the minds of the multitude, he was closely identified with the cause of American freedom. Rarely in his assaults on the Church of God has that archangel ruin, whose name is called Apollyon, been able to occupy such vantage ground. The appeal to the American people was this. You have thrown off allegiance to the British king, now throw off the yoke of superstition and be free men indeed. How opposite is that to you? You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Thomas Paine scoffed at all that was sacred in religion, profanely mocked and blasphemed the ordinances of God. Oh, it was a tremendous eruption of the bottomless pit. The shock had well nigh thrown down the hope of the church. The smoke did ascend it filled all the air with blackness and eclipsed the sun, while ashes, cinders, and lava came down, threatening to bury every vestige of good that yet remained in society. So that's coming up to about 1797, and that's about the time that James McGrady came from North Carolina, and I'll give you his biography in a moment, because that's the main character in this uh, study, at least for Logan County. <clears throat> in a letter to the editors of the New York Magazine, the venerable Gideon Blackburn says, quote, about the years 1798 and 1799, the darkness was thick like that in Egypt, the darkness which might be felt. 
spiritual darkness. The few pious in the land were ready to cry out, Has God forgotten to be gracious? Are his mercies clean gone? Will he be favorable no more? About this period, pious men in the West began to call on the name of the Lord with that earnestness and importunity which takes no denial. In Logan County, Kentucky, James McGrady was already here. I'll talk about that in a minute. And some Christian people appointed seasons of special prayer. They also set apart days of fasting and humiliation before God. That means it would not be denied. And by the way, this is what should give you hope about prayer and revival. If you remember when I was talking about a treatise on indwelling sin, and I always mention chapter 5 of John Owen, treatise on indwelling sin, that sin itself, its very nature, does not change. Its dominion has changed. It no longer has the ascendancy, Romans 6, 14. But within sin itself is, it is very root, hostility to God, enmity against God. So you, as Owen says, you wake up in the morning, you want to have a good devotional, you want to really start off in prayer to God, and you find this disinclination going on inside of you. And this is that enemy that you have to fight every day and you have to recognize that this is what it aims at and this is what it is doing though it cannot regain the dominion and never ceases to try to do so so if you are among a number of professing christians and you notice that there is such a spirit of grace and supplication within them to pray much about a thing that you can know that that spirit of grace and supplication I believe that Zechariah 12 10 I will pour upon them a spirit of grace and supplication when people are stirred up to pray earnestly to God importunately to God then God has given them that spirit of supplication and it's a hopeful sign because when the Holy Spirit stirs up people to pray much about a thing, God has already stirred himself up to listen to those prayers. He's the initiator of them. So let's talk a minute about James McGrady and I get my early history from him. And I mention these names and I get them on the recording in case people in future times want to do a study of this. There were three books mentioned by Murray for historical background. And one of them was A History of Connecticut by Benjamin Trumbull. And that was all the way back to the 1600s as two volumes. But uh, there were also two books by a William Henry Foote, a Presbyterian historian called Sketches of Virginia and Sketches of North Carolina. And he calls it sketches because it's not a complete history. It's a history of the prominent pastors within Virginia, North Carolina. Well, James McGrady was born in uh, he was born in Pennsylvania, but very early on they moved to North Carolina. And he was of Scotch-Irish parents, so a lot of your Presbyterians were of the Scotch-Irish descent. He spent the greater part of his boyhood in Guilford County, North Carolina. There was a quality about him as a youth which convinced the visiting uncle that he ought to be educated for the Christian ministry. You know, that's, uh, I don't know if you guys addressed that in your pastor's inbox, but uh, how do you counsel somebody that comes to you and they believe, look, I have aspirations to the ministry. But I would question whether the brightest and best counsel is that you see somebody that you think is naturally has the gift of articulation and is uh, very given to studies and try to press him forward into the 
ministry. I'm not making a blanket statement there because if you know the story of Jeremy Walker, Austin Walker's son, Jeremy displayed obvious gifts of being able to teach and teach well. And the people of the church where Austin Walker pastored actually had to come to Jeremy and kind of stir him up because he didn't, he was very diffident to the idea of a call to the ministry, but they just saw something in him. And now he's become a very, very good preacher, historian, and so on. In 1788, James McGrady, a pupil of John McMillan of Cannonsburg, and uh, that's probably McMillan there. And where this history is so rich, that actually was the building, whether they've restored it or not, I'm not sure, but that was the actual building where McMillan was preparing young men for the ministry. But it's the succession prior to McMillan that I think is so interesting because if you will notice, that's pretty much a log building. In the 1740s, an immigrant from Scotland, William Tennant, started what was called the first log college where they were preparing Presbyterian pastors for the ministry. And Log College originally, it was a little bigger than this, but was kind of a term of derision, but they it stuck because it really described what was going on. Well, the Log College, the original, had a successor college in Pennsylvania. And one of the professors there was a man named Samuel Blair. And you probably have never heard of that name, but it is interesting to me that if you look at the back of the Sermons of Samuel Davies at three volumes, there's a quote by Lloyd-Jones that Americans don't even know who their greatest preacher was, and he's referring to Samuel Davies. Well, Samuel Davies thought the best preacher he ever heard was his professor, Samuel Blair, and there was a great revival that came under Blair's ministry. And then you had another college that was somewhat fashioned after these log colleges. So Macmillan, John Macmillan, prepared a number of young men for the ministry. So where this is interesting to me, I have a friend on Facebook who is a real Presbyterian historian, and I love Presbyterian history, and I know I'm an anomaly to him because I'm so Reformed Baptist, but I love Presbyterian history because it was so much better chronicled than some of our Baptist history, and I love the history of Princeton Theological Seminary names like Charles Hodge, Benjamin Warfield, and the original three, Archibald Alexander, who taught all of the classes the first year that the seminary was formed in 1812, and then Samuel Miller joined him, and that was the beginning of Princeton Theological Seminary. These early seminaries that were used to prepare men for the ministry and this as well, all of your pastors who were teaching theology also were themselves pastors. We've we're kind of getting away from that. I'm not saying Reformed Baptists. I'm taking a generalization statement that our seminaries, the professors, have become separated from the pastors. And so a lot of your second generation, third generations of 
students who graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary were trained by men who were not themselves pastors. I've talked to uh, Pastor Waldron about this. He's interested in this history, and I had said to him, and he said that he agreed that the problem was that our students became more academicians instead of preachers. And even when Lane Tipton was here, providentially, I just happened to be sitting at the table with him. I didn't go out of my way to do that. I Usually when there's a guest speaker here, I try to allow the students to have all the time with them. I try not to come in and impress them or get in a conversation, but we happen to be sitting there, and I said to Lane, Dr. Tipton, I said, if there's a concern I have for ministerial students in our day, it is that they are becoming polemicists first instead of pastors, and he agreed with that. So McGrady was actually pastoring, and there was a revival that went on in North Carolina. And McGrady is one of these people, and it's amazing that we forgot his name, and I know part of it is there wasn't a lot left. I showed you the uh, works that were published by him. There really wasn't a lot. He never kept a diary or anything, so we don't know a lot about him. But McGrady, Whitfield, Nettleton, and a few others were just so blessed that it just seemed that wherever they labored, God was pleased to bring revival, and McGrady was that way. And he was really being fashioned in North Carolina as a frontier preacher. He was tough as nails. And he was very, you looked at this guy and you knew you didn't want to pick a fight with him. And he was very, very bold in his preaching. It said that he was licensed to preach by the Presbytery of Redstone and he possessed much of his teacher's strong and energetic character and fervent zeal kindled by the fire of the earlier revivals. But he was pastoring at different places and when he got to Kentucky he was actually the pastor of three churches. There was such a shortage of pastors. So you had the Muddy River Congregation, the Red River Congregation, the other uh, name is slipping me, but they had to pastor two, three churches each. And one of the churches that McGrady was pastoring, there was a kind of a family there that just took issue with how powerful and bold this guy's preaching was. So he showed up at church on Sunday at this church and he discovered that his pulpit had been chopped into pieces and they took it outside and made a bonfire out of it and then they took a piece of paper and they somebody pricked their finger and they wrote in blood that if you do not desist where things are going to happen to you and he just showed up Sunday like nothing happened he saw what went on and he just went on he just wasn't the type of uh pastor that was going to be intimidated. And I saw in that, because I was very interested in that, could you imagine coming to Kentucky in 1800 with, it was said of Daniel Boone that his son was the first recorded white birth in Kentucky. There were so many Indians. Well, by 1800, this was still a very, very primitive uh, backwoods area. Well, McGrady moved to Logan County sometime after this happened, but he had already been the subject of a couple of revivals that had happened in North 
Carolina. And he moved to Logan County. And Logan County had a reputation. I don't know if I had. But the people who were the outlaws in the East, the robbers, the renegades, the tax cheats, and all that, in order to flee away from the law, they came down here to Logan County, Kentucky. So he was coming into the harshest area, and I don't have enough information about what led him to want to come to Kentucky, except just must have been a missionary spirit. I mean, think about this, 1800. Our missionaries were being prepared to preach the gospel to people that were west of the Allegheny Mountain. That was our mission field in 1800. The country was so new. And for whatever reason, he decided to come here. So this is his extract from his own statement about what it looked like in Kentucky in 1797. And then when the revival started, this is his words of what happened. In the month of May 1797, which was the spring after I came to this country, the Lord graciously visited Gasper River. That was the third Gasper River congregation. So he had three congregations, an infant church under my charge. And he knew the people did not have much of a theological background. So he's going to teach them about four basic things about the Christian life, regeneration, faith, repentance, and so on, which he says he uniformly preached, seemed to call the attention of the people to a serious inquiry. And these are the questions they were asking themselves and asking him. I mean, this was new to, this was new to them. You know, he was raised up in Presbyterian circles. But this is new to them, and they're asking him questions like, is religion a sensible thing? In other words, can I sense it? If I were converted, would I feel it and know it? In May, as I said before, the work began. A woman who had been a professor in full communion in the church found her old hope false and delusive. She was struck with deep conviction and in a few days was filled with joy and peace in believing. She immediately visited her friends and relations from house to house, warned them of their danger in a most solemn and faithful manner, and pleaded with them to repent and seek religion. This as a mean, it means grace, but he's using a singular term as a means of grace, was accompanied with, with a divine blessing to the awakening of many. About this time, the ears of all in that congregation seemed to be open to receive the word preached. Almost every sermon was accompanied with the power of God to the awakening of sinners. In the summer of 1798, the administration of the sacrament of the supper in July. So administration of the sacrament, I mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again, that because these guys came from the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians, and they, many of them held to a solemn league and covenant Westminster Confession, but their communion was not every Sunday. It was a communion season, so maybe three or four times a year. And they would take an entire week, and everything would be to the end of preparing people for the Lord's table. And it was the communion week that God was pleased to bless for the revival. People were probably in a more contemplative frame during that time. Perhaps but few families in the congregation could be found who less or more were not struck with an awful sense of their lost 
state. A blessing appeared to follow the labors of this man and the other preachers of the gospel in the new settlements from time to time in different places. Till the year 1800 when an excitement commenced. There are certain terms that they use that uh, be patient with me as I explain those because a lot of people listening don't understand a lot of the language that was used in the 18th and 19th century. When they say an excitement, that means that the people are all stirred up to spiritual things. When they talk about religious exercises, that would mean that they're having fellowship together, they're praying together or whatever. They call those exercises. A blessing appeared to follow the labors of this man and so on. And in 1800, when an excitement commenced, which for influence, duration, and extent has been unequaled in the southern and western states, and as pervading and resistless and as fertile in novelties as that which spread over the middle and eastern states between the years 1740 and 1750, when Jonathan Edwards, the tenants, Samuel Blair, Eliezer Willock, Samuel Davies, and others took a prominent part. The first laborers in this work were James McGrady, William Hodge, and uh, William McGee. Now, McGee, I believe, was a, a Wesleyan. At first, it was but a powerful excitement, then it was accompanied with bodily exercises of a strange and unaccountable nature, which for a time bewildered the judgments of the most clear-sighted ministers, and are with difficulty accounted for at this day. And I may, I may just probably next week, if we do a Kentucky Revival Part 2. It's going to be more of an overview of the aberrations that happened during a revival that really are... Nobody's given a satisfactory answer as to what was going on. Uh, for example, the jerks, uh, the shakers. Um, and it's a very, very interesting study, and I'll save that to next week. And we'll discuss something called the power of sympathy in a revival. And I can guarantee you that if Terry and Adam were here, they would eat it up. Because I've discussed this before for our podcast for the seminary, and it's a very, very interesting phenomenon called sympathy. Soon after the commencement of this excitement... Persons began to be struck down during religious exercises, struck down. So if you were to see it, it would look like what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. And I said this last week, this is absolutely essential. There's a term that we use called concomitant, things that go along with something, but they are the effects of something they are not the root of it so anything that happens spiritually to the inner man uh, mind the affections and the inclination will have to some degree because we are physiological people some effect upon the body so if a person is under the fear under intense conviction that they are going to hell and they fall to the ground under a great deal of conviction. That can happen in the revival. However, this is so important, and we'll talk about this more next week. The things that accompany the conviction that you see in a revival are in and of themselves, not the revival itself. They are things that are inevitable results from it. And what happened with 
Charles Finney and in some degree I believe the Wesleys and Whitfield even early on, they thought the revival was a success if they see or saw a number of people fall over under conviction. And what was interesting about the Presbyterian pastors that were used during the Great Awakening, like Jonathan Dickinson, he was in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, and became the first president of the College of New Jersey, is that they knew that in order to guard against aberrations in the revival, that they would immediately bring under control any of these outward manifestations that got out of control. But I'm just explaining what right now is meant by they fail. This falling was at first preceded by great anxiety of mind on the subject of salvation and succeeded by joyful exercises. The subjects, those who were the subjects of it, unable to move or speak, were entirely sensible and were often deeply exercised and could tell many things that passed around them in that apparently lifeless state. So it gets interesting um, because in the revival there were some things that went on in Kentucky that were unique to this frontier. However, uh, the pastors who were well informed and went around to counsel people who were under spiritual awakening, duress, fear, so on, when somebody fell over in the congregation, that got a lot of people's attention and they knew they had to bring that under control immediately or it would turn into some kind of fanaticism. But the pastors would talk to these people and some of them, and Edwards describes this too, that they had fallen and lay there for 12 to 24 hours completely still. But as they were pressed as to what was going on afterwards, there was no dreams, nobody's talking about anything like that. It's just that they had such feeling of the Holy Spirit enlightening their understanding, their focus on heavenly things was so intense that they were in a kind of a swoon during that time. And if you read the life of Jonathan Edwards, there's a whole section in there on Sarah Edwards, his wife, who went uh, through some really, really joyful things during the revival. And she was in such a state of heaven upon earth that somebody would even read Isaac Watts hymns to her and it was overwhelming. She would almost swoon and pass out. However, as I was saying, the Presbyterian pastors really, really guarded this because swooning, falling down, and those type of things are effects. They are not the revival itself. The revival only comes as the Holy Spirit through the Word enlightens the understanding blinds the will, changes the affections. That's a spiritual thing. And what happens to the body is something that may be an effect, but it in and of itself has no spiritual virtue to it. Your body cannot produce spiritual fruit. It has to come from the Holy Spirit working upon the soul. 
And that means that after we have passed away, before we have a resurrected body, we're going to be able to have the same type of worship, joy, everything that goes along with the spiritual elements of revival. Nothing to hinder them, but at that time there won't be a body, so there will be no physical manifestations. The account which these persons gave of their mental exercises and their religious experience was such as to satisfy the most rigid inquiries, and this exercise became connected in the minds of people generally with conversion. By what invisible link no one pretended to declare. Well, that's what we want to be careful about. Nobody could say why you would say that just because a person was struck down and under conviction that it was a sign that they would have been converted or would be converted. I mean, the Holy Spirit can convict you. The Holy Spirit can enlighten the understanding up to a point short of conversion. It is no guarantee that somebody's going to become a Christian because they're under a great deal of fear. Now the pious and the thoughtful who are observing this at first were amazed and afraid to oppose what appeared to be connected indissolubly with the work of God and finally for a time gave into the opinion that it was the necessary part of the revival. Now that's a mistake. That it's a necessary part of the revival. No it isn't a necessary part of the revival. It is something that is an effect of what God is doing upon the soul. And so they thought you must not oppose it. People came in crowds to the meetings that were held to satisfy the demand for preaching on horseback and wagons and on foot. And remained on the ground for days and continued engaged day and night in religious services with little intermission, listening to sermons and exhortations and uniting in prayer and praise. So people were showing up. This word got out that something is going on. And you got to remember, it's 1800 in Kentucky. What did they have for entertainment? Some people came just out of curiosity. They wanted to see what this is going on. That was their entertainment. And they would come in in the stage coaches and on horse or whatever. And because inevitably you couldn't just send them home, they weren't going to travel at night, that they would just set up camp and it was the beginning of the camp meetings and they found their origin here down in Logan County. The problem again though is that the camp meeting, though a necessity for the people who are staying there, is no more part of a revival than these lights, though they assist us in the worship, are themselves part of the worship. And with Finney and others as they came along, they took these things that were accompaniments and effects of the revival, and they said, this is what produces a revival, so we have to work the things up. But I, okay, so you have a camp meeting, you have a number of people that are coming there from a distance, as many as 20,000 people. So in Kentucky, you know how there are so many trees around here and you got thousands of people coming in and you only got a handful of pastors maybe seven for ten thousand people so that's where we got the term stump preacher they had to cut off a stump three to four feet high just so that the pastor the preacher could get on top of that and be heard over the congregation there were so many people so they became known as the stump preachers. But I want to, and we won't go on long, a lot further, I, I do want to read this account of, there was a pastor who, a lot of this 
news was getting back to North Carolina because some of these people were for North Carolina. They were going home. They were telling people what was going on in Kentucky. So a good, good pastor, his name was George Baxter, and he visited in 1800, and he was a spectator. He wasn't trying to say, this is a revival, this isn't a revival. He wanted to record what was happening, and he was very, very sober-minded, and he wrote a letter to Archibald Alexander. Well, Alexander became the professor at Princeton Theological Seminary in 1812. This was 1801. So he, at the time, was a president of a place called Hampton Sydney College in Virginia, but already had a pretty decent reputation. So George um, wrote, Baxter wrote a letter to Alexander to tell him what he is witnessing in the last year from Kentucky. And Alexander has a name for himself. And a lot of this information I had to dig up myself and my friend who's a Presbyterian scholar and historian very interested in my research because he a lot of these things he wouldn't delve into it in the detail that I do because Alexander in so many ways is my spiritual father so I was interested in his whole life all the things he wrote and so on I mean in 1984 I had nobody to turn to in the Bible Belt who could help sort me out and it was Alexander's book Thoughts on Religious Experience that was so instrumental to me so this letter by George Baxter on the left to Archibald Alexander on the right in the picture is Written from Washington Academy, January 1st, 1802. Reverend and dear sir, I now sit down agreeably to promise to give you some account of the revival of religion in the state of Kentucky. You have no doubt heard already of the Green River and Cumberland revivals. I will just observe that last summer is the fourth since a revival commenced in those places, and that it has been more remarkable than any of the preceding, not only for lively and fervent devotion among Christians, but also for awakenings and conversions among the careless. And it is worthy of notice that very few instances of apostasy have appeared. And that's always a good sign. If a revival in the main is solid, and people have been properly impressed, one of the best fruits of that is that people don't apostatize after the fact. They're not just stony ground here. They don't just go back to the world. They were really, as we discussed the word, wrought upon, worked upon. And so continuing in the faith is a very good sign that the revival is genuine. In the older settlements of Kentucky, the revival made its first appearance among the Presbyterians last spring. The whole of that country about a year before was remarkable for vice and dissipation. And I've been credibly informed that a decided majority of the people were professed infidels. In fact, somebody else was having a discussion about that time and said that he believed that he was quoting somebody else. Half of the people that lived in the area at the time were infidels. That's how far this infidelity had spread. And this pastor from Missouri said, half, I believe nine out of ten people here are infidels. Before this revival, During the last winter, appearances were favorable among the Baptists, and great numbers were added to their churches. Early in the spring, the ministrations of the Presbyterian clergy began to be better attended than they had been for many years before. Their worshiping assemblies became more solemn, and the people, after they were dismissed, showed a strange reluctance at leaving the place. 
You remember in uh, our first Bluffton conference, you probably heard of it, uh, Bluffton, Ohio. Uh, we started in 1983, and that was the uh, time that Al Martin was invited, and he preached four sermons called God's Word to Our Nation. And the one on the sense of religious apostasy, I think, comes out to about an hour, 25 hour, and 30 minutes that sermon by Martin. And I'm using this as an illustration of what is being mentioned here, and that is that the people were dismissed after Al Martin preached. And uh, David Merrick told me more than once that uh, nobody got up. They were so under conviction after Martin had preached that uh, for a while they just sat there stunned. Perhaps about the last of May, or the first of June, the awakenings became general in some congregations and spread through the country in every direction with amazing rapidity. I left that country about the first of November, at which time this revival in connection with the one on Cumberland had covered the whole state. So all of Kentucky is under revival pretty much, except in a small settlement which borders on the waters of the Green River. The same one that's just five miles, the boat ramp from where we live, the Green River, in which no Presbyterian ministers are settled, and I believe very few of any denomination. That was 1801. The power with which this revival has spread and its influence in moralizing the people are difficult for you to conceive of and more difficult for me to describe. So he's describing this. He's witnessed this now. He's the third person writing back and giving a report. I had heard many accounts and seen many letters respecting it before I went to that country, but my expectations so greatly raised were much below the reality of the work. The congregations when engaged in worship presented scenes of solemnity superior to what I had ever seen before. And in private houses, it was no uncommon thing to hear parents relate to strangers the wonderful things which God had done in their neighborhoods, while a large circle of young people would be in tears. On my way to Kentucky, <coughs> I was told by settlers on the road that the character of Kentucky travelers was entirely changed. I mean, they were given to what they called dissipation and an ordinate life, but now it was completely changed. And that they were now as distinguished for sobriety as they had formerly been for dissoluteness. And indeed, I found Kentucky the most moral place I had ever been in. A profane expression was hardly heard. A religious awe seemed to pervade the country. And some deistical characters had confessed that from whatever cause this revival might originate, it certainly made the people better. The length of time that people continue at the places of worship is another important circumstance of the Kentucky revival. At Cane Ridge, that was the one up by Paris, Kentucky, they met on Friday and continued till Wednesday evening, night and day, without intermission, either in public or private exercises of devotion. And with such earnestness that heavy showers of rain were not sufficient to disperse them. On other sacramental occasions, they generally continued on the ground until Monday or Tuesday evening, and had not the preachers been exhausted and obliged to retire, pastors got to go and sleep, or had they chosen a few months before, the clergy found it difficult to detain the people during the usual exercises of the Sabbath. The practice of camping on the ground, camp meetings, was introduced partly by necessity and partly by inclination. The assemblies were generally too large to be received by any common neighborhood. Everything indeed was done which hospitality and brotherly kindness could do. So it reminds you in the book of Acts that everything was spread uh, between the people. 
hospitality and brotherly kindness to accommodate the people. Public and private houses were open and free invitations given to all persons who wished to retire. Farmers gave up their meadows before they were mown to supply the horses. Yet notwithstanding all this liberality, it would have been impossible in many cases to have accommodated the whole assemblies with private lodgings. But besides, the people were unwilling to allow any interruption in their devotions. I don't want to leave. I want to stay right here. Look, I can sleep on my couch. I don't want to leave this. This is something I've never experienced before. And they formed an attachment to the place where they were continually seeing so many careless sinners receiving their first impressions. Impressions. The Holy Spirit make an impression on them. So they were convicted. The following extract of a letter dated Cane Ridge, January 30th, 1801, gives a striking account of the work as it first appeared in the lower parts of Kentucky and Cumberland. The work is still increasing in Cumberland. It has overspread the whole country. It is in Nashville, Barron, Muddy, Gasper, Red Banks, Knoxville, Tennessee, and so on. JMC, the pastor's initials, has been there two months. He says it exceeds any he ever saw or heard of. Children and all seem to be engaged, but children are the most active in the work. When they speak, it appears that the Lord sends his spirit to accompany it with power to the hearts of sinners. They all seem to be wrought in an extraordinary way. They lie as though they were dead for some time without pulse or breath. Sometimes they would lie so still that some people worried that they had died. Some longer, some a shorter time, some rise with joy and triumph, others crying for mercy. As soon as they get comfort, they cry to sinners, exhorting them day and night to turn to the Lord. It is worthy of notice that a work by which God intended to bring down the pride and loftiness of man should begin in small children. By this it was manifest who were the furthest lost from God, and what course must be taken in order to return. At a sacrament near Flemingsburg the last Sabbath in April, the power of God was very visible among the people through the whole of the occasion, under which there was much weeping, trembling, and convulsion of soul. Now this, this, some of these stories I have to qualify, but they're so interesting. But what was the most solemn and striking was the case of two little girls who in the time of meeting cried out in great distress. They both continued for some time praying and crying for mercy till one of them received a comfortable hope. And then she turned to the other and cried out, Oh, you little sinner, come to Christ. Take hold of his promise. Trust in him. He is able to save to the uttermost. Oh, I have found peace in my soul. Oh, the precious Savior, come just as you are. He will take away the stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. You can't make yourself any better. Just give up your heart to Christ now. You are not a greater sinner than me. You need not wait another moment. Thus she continued exhorting until her little companion received the ray of heaven that produced a sudden and sensible change and rising with her. In her arms she cried out in a most affecting manner, Oh, here is another star of light. These children were perhaps nine or ten years old. Now, there was something I was reading about this revival that uh, is very interesting, but I will qualify it so there's no misunderstanding here. During a revival, and the Holy Spirit is quickening the spiritual affections, enlightening the mind, that things that have been memorized, say, by a catechism for a child, things that they have been taught, and in adults too, can, by the Holy Spirit be brought back to the memory very vividly so that they can recall 
things that they had memorized. I put the emphasis there because that is not a gift of prophecy. The Holy Spirit can remind us of things that we have stored in our memory and bring them back to our memory to refresh us, to warn us, to assist us. And a lot of times it can be very, very helpful. And I mention this because there was a three-year-old girl all of three. And she was so small that to get around, her dad was carrying her in his arms. And everybody was gathered around to listen to the three-year-old girl because they could not believe the exhortations that was coming from her. To all of the people around, they were astonished that this child was so articulate that she was able to express herself so well. And another thing that happens during a revival is that when you're given a spirit of grace and supplication, what is the Holy Spirit going to bring back to your memory to pray to God, but the scriptures that you have memorized? And you will find an unction sometimes when people are praying and sometimes when people are preaching that they know the Holy Spirit in a great measure is assisting them. And we need not be afraid of that kind of language. The Holy Spirit can bring things back to our memory. And so some pastors during a revival sometimes get by with fewer notes or they don't stick to the notes because they're Memory is so refreshed by the Holy Spirit bringing the things that they have cherished in their heart and they exhort with a great deal of passion and pathos. And that was common during this revival. So that's the actual typed up letter. This is my copy of the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine. It's in my library. So this actual date is July of 1800 and because I've taught revival a number of times it was just really a prize for me. Now uh, great McGrady was a, a character uh, a little bit eccentric and uh, you know he's a frontiers man so you got to give him a little bit of leeway but um, he was very very bold and powerful in his delivery but the first time that I, I actually narrated this sermon, but the first time that I was reading this, I broke out laughing. It wasn't funny. I broke out laughing in shock that somebody would preach a sermon like this. You know, sometimes things shock you so much, you kind of laugh inside. His goal in that sermon was, because he's speaking to these people who are pretty rough frontiers people in Kentucky, and his sermon was designed to uh, play on their you know, fear instincts. Edwards would do this in his deprecatory sermons, but he says, if you're bent on going to hell anyway, I'm going to give you directions on how to get there, and if you follow my advice, you will not miss a bit. So it's called The Sinner's Guide to Hell. I said, only you, Mr. McGrady. <laughs> and this is approximately what a camp would look like. And you know, 10 to 20,000 people came to. I mean, this is Kentucky in 1800-1801. And you take that many people in our day, maybe there's a number of revivals, we could shake up this state pretty good, you know. And that's why we absolutely have to pray for, you know, God isn't limited to 
the 1800s. He hasn't changed. So I'll say just a couple of things in closing, because next week I'll talk about some of the things you got to look out for in revival, because this is a class not just on the history. I want to lay some foundations, because when the Asbury revival came to Kentucky, a lot of people who shouldn't have known better were taken in by that. And... It was interesting that people were very impatient during that, quote, revival for somebody to get up and preach a 40-minute sermon. They said, no, all we want to do is sing or have somebody read us a verse. But Peter Cartwright was in Kentucky before McGrady got there. He was a missionary evangelist that served in Kentucky for the Methodist Church for quite a while before McGrady got here. But there was another guy, Lorenzo Dow, and I don't know what it was about Kentucky that uh, these people were, they were rough, but they preached so powerfully. But Lorenzo Dow, no kidding, would not change his clothes because he had no change of clothes until somebody in the audience would donate another set of clothes to him. So only in Kentucky. Uh, but uh, but amazingly was a powerful preacher. But uh, you know I got to thinking about this. So one problem the Presbyterian Church had in settling the West was they had such a zeal for a educated ministry, and that's a good thing. However, there are certain things that are learned in a seminary that are not as useful and essential when you're a missionary in a place like Kentucky in 1800. And so because there was such an emphasis on preparing these people theologically, they didn't have the outreach that they could have had. I'm not saying that you deny any of these things, but there are certain things that seminary students study that aren't necessary to be heard immediately when you get to the mission field. And it caused them to compromise with the Congregationalists, and that's how they came up with the Plan of Union in 1801, that uh, they didn't have enough missionaries, so they needed to work with Congregationalist pastors. But the Congregationalists very early on became Unitarians, and uh, this found its way into our seminaries and so on. But I'm going to stop right there. Uh, you got any questions, Michael? You got any kind of light? So when that person mentioned that nine out of ten people were infidels, that means they were like... Followers of uh, Voltaire and Thomas Paine. Well, like I had mentioned, that uh, Yale College had, as best as I can tell, 110 people when Timothy Dwight got there in 1800. And remember, Yale College and Harvard were formed. Harvard was formed to prepare missionaries uh, for the mission field, but also to prepare men for the ministry. So if only one person out of 10 or 11 or is even a professing Christian, and it's a, a quote, Christian college, you know, there's a problem there. Specifically at the... Uh, Yale. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you think that's part of why there were so many? Because it was a university? Because, I mean, you would think that in a normal town, any normal town in the U.S. at that time, that the percentage of professing Christians would have been a lot higher. Well, what had happened, though, and I mentioned this, you weren't here yet, that uh, there was a plan that was being rolled out in Europe 
for Voltaire to demolish Christianity and he had a method of doing it where all of his teachings were making its way into schools and so on. And so infidelity was very, very rife and uh, writings of Thomas Paine were so popular during the Revolutionary War. But go ahead, Blake. You look like you have a question. Oh, <laughs> um, wait a minute. That, that laugh seemed kind of fake. Um, so you're talking about people falling because of conviction, because of a reality of hell, and that, no. that they could be sent there because the reality of sin is so um, revealed to them. So, I thought of an experimental question. Can you explain to someone who comes from a charismatic denomination that believe in what's called being slain in the spirit? You probably heard of that. The diff and explain the difference between falling on the floor out of conviction versus being slain in the spirit, as they say, and shaken out of receiving what's what they would call Holy. I think the fastest way to get to the bottom of that is you uh, just press them with, uh, well, who do you say are slain in the Spirit? You guys always say it's professing Christians, correct? People who are already believers get uh, the Holy Spirit to fill them so much that they are slain. But when they're talking about people falling, they're always talking about unconverted people who are aware in their inner man that they are under the wrath of God and the uh, terrifying presence which can be felt during a revival. It's overwhelming that they drop to the ground a lot of times in despair. Uh, so the difference is that they're saying that this is something that Christians should seek and I'm saying that when they fell down they weren't yet Christians. They were alarmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the assembly. And I use the illustration of when Jonathan Edwards came to Enfield, Connecticut, July 8th, 1741, that, uh, and I tell this story, and I'll just get it recorded here. It might be useful to somebody that people look at this sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, and they say this, the wording is so powerful. I can see how people would come under conviction and so on. But the thing about it is what's not realized is there's only two written accounts of what happened when Edwards preached that sermon. One was recorded by Eliezer Wheelock, who also was a... Uh, evangelist missionary who was itinerant. He was going from place to place preaching. Wheelock was the one that I believe picked up Jonathan Edwards to take him into the church in Enfield. I am not sure if that was Wheelock's church. And he wrote, the, he gave the story verbally to Benjamin Trumbull. I mentioned Benjamin Trumbull wrote a history of Connecticut. So Trumbull's story of what happened when Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God is from Eliezer Wheelock. The only other record that we have of that sermon was by a pastor who is a cousin of Jonathan Edwards named Stephen Williams. And Williams kept a diary for 10 years and it actually now is online and parts of it have been put into an English that you can read because it just looks like scribbling to us. And it's at the uh, store's library in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And I actually went in because the whole thing is there and I actually found the entry for July 8th, 1741. No other people have written down what Williams wrote, 
I wanted to see it for myself so I could tell the story. And that is that there was such an outcry when Edwards preached sinners in the hand of an angel of God because of the manifest presence of God upon the assembly that I tell the people, you don't even know how much of that sermon Edwards preached. It doesn't say. It says that he had to stop. He put his arms in the air to be heard by the congregation because the outcry was so loud. But he may not have gotten very far into that sermon. Uh, because when the uh, convicting presence of God comes upon an assembly, he doesn't need the word of God to convict you in a legal conviction. The word of God is absolutely necessary for his enlightening for salvation and true evangelical conviction. But we have enough of the law within our consciences that if the Holy Spirit just comes and enlightens the conscience to how guilty you are, you could be under tremendous fear and legal conviction even before the pastor preached anything from the word. That's what's going to happen on the last day for the wicked is their own conscience is going to condemn them even before the books are opened. Pastor Joe, you have anything to add? No. But, so what I'm getting at is that the falling down typically happens with the unconverted, not with the converted. And the charismatics are making the emphasis on this is something that believers should seek for, uh, to be slain in the spirit. But the reason that they fall to the ground is because they can no longer stand up. They're in such a fright that they lose the use of their limbs or whatever. They just fall down in absolute dread. I'll give you an idea of how powerful that is. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but remember in Daniel 5 when uh, Belteshazzar uh, had handwriting on the wall? To give you an idea how scared he was, Gil points out in the original Hebrew the emphasis on he became incontinent. In other words, he was so fearful he was wetting his pants. I mean, that's that's the truth. That's how absolutely scared Belteshazzar was. He lost the control of his, you know, bowels, everything. I mean, when you're under that kind of fright, the body is going to manifest itself in a certain way. But that conviction in and of itself is only a hopeful sign because he's no longer a state of carnal security, of duracy, stupidity, asleep. Now he is at least awakened. However, any seeking of Christ in under those type of fears is selfish. You're not coming to Christ when you're under that kind of fear because you want him as a savior from your sins. The only thing that you want is a savior from the damnation that you could feel within yourself that you know that you are exposed to. So a Christian with a burden on his back, all of the desires that he has to get rid of the burden initially are mercenary motives. He knows that he's in the city of destruction, that judgment is going to come upon it. And the burden is driving him crazy too because of the conviction of a sin. But there's nothing virtuous in 
being afraid and convicted that you deserve to go to hell. However, most of mankind are so indifferent to spiritual things that a lot of time revival started that way just by alerting somebody to the fact that uh, judgment is coming, God is angry, you are guilty, and so on. And so a pastor has to be very, very careful when you're counseling somebody under that kind of awakening to get him to see that those fears in and of themselves are not true conviction of sin. You can have all of those fears and still your heart be set at absolute total enmity to God. Until you're born again, you can't bring forth any evangelical sorrow for sin. You know, I am really surprised 